Welcome to the wonderful world of wine. We are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. If you'd like to get more information about our show, please go to our Facebook page at The Wonderful World of Wine. Hello, Kim. We have a lot of topics to talk about today. How are you? I'm well, thanks. How are you? Great. We have so much in the wine world going on. Our first topic today is from Forbes.com, and it's about the Rosé Research Center in Provence, France. And Kim, I know this is one of your favorite beverages, rosé wine. I really like rosé. And we've been talking a lot because this is a hot trend in the wine world. One of the things we talked in the past on is the rosé trend in colors, and it had a lot to do with what this research senate does so what was your take on it yeah i thought this was interesting that there actually is a place in provence in the south of france that is putting a lot of its emphasis on research into not only improving the quality of rosés but of doing a lot of things for differentiation and figuring out different grape varieties what grows best where and i really liked this idea of this color chart that they have developed that really sort of puts a focus on what the different shades of pink that you can expect from your rosé is. So I thought that was kind of neat. Yeah, we were actually introduced, and I, I don't know about you, but for myself, Kim, when we took our French Wine Scholar program, the instructor had an actual vials of colors of Provence mm-hmm. rosé, and it was like a Sherman Williams of, of wine. <laughs> yeah, and it was like very pink. interesting. And, and they actually said in this article that there's actually six official color names of right. rosé. And they were kind of strange to me because one of them was red currant. Then we had peach, grapefruit, melon, mango, and tangerine. So when you hear those, you're not really thinking shades of pink. Right. Especially things like tangerine, where they have those sort of orangey notes to it. But it does make sense because different grape varieties do have certain color characteristics. So something like Grenache, which is very, very commonly used in these rosés, often will have an orange tint to it. So this, in in my mind, this makes a a fair amount of sense. So we had an event the other night and surprisingly, you well, not surprisingly, because you know all the facts, Kim, you had mentioned how far back this region has been making rosé wine and this institution was actually formed in 1999 but the Greeks had a lot to do with rosé wine right. in this area. Rosé in this part of France has been produced for literally thousands of years going back 25, 2600 years of, of making this style of wine. So often when we talk about French wine and we talk about why certain regions do what they do and why they're so latched on to their concept of tradition and history and this is just the way that we do it and we don't necessarily want to change a whole lot of things it's because they've been doing these winemaking techniques or making these styles of wine for so long and they have the experience and they have all this background of doing things the way that they've been doing and they feel like okay we have reached what we feel is the best possible product coming from our place so for a rosé research institute to be based in Provence is pretty much a no-brainer to me. And they're using this scientific data, you know, really to keep the quality of the wines up, to keep them to a certain standard. It's really an iconic style from this part of France. So one of the things that this institute is trying to do is to keep that quality and keep those styles going. And the winemaking standards that they set here, not only colors, but winemaking techniques is shared throughout the world for all winemakers. And you had mentioned 
Kim, the, the Greeks, and the, the history is amazing. You, you figure they got here. Did they figure it's too hot? We have to do something, right? Or, or is it based on the food, you think? What do you think got them into rosé? I think a lot of it has to do with sometimes these places where wine grapes grow really well, a lot of other things don't necessarily grow well. So when you look at this part of France, you see a lot of like herbs growing and sort of scrubby, brushy areas that might be a little bit harder to grow, say, vegetable crops or grain crops, but grapevines do fantastic in these places. Very similar to a lot of places in Greece, actually. So I think that that comparison was there and that sometimes these places that are only good for growing grapes can produce the best possible grapes. So I think that that's one of the factors here. So Provence is on east coast of France. Didn't I, I thought I saw something where... Isn't it one of the biggest resort destinations? Yeah, it's beach? really, really big it's for... It's hot. It's very, you know, summery a lot of the time, and it's really big for vacations. This institution has a great website for rosé and anything you want to know about education or color charts. It's called the ProvenceWineUSA.com, and the, the Wine Scholar Guild and the French Wine Scholar Program support this group. So for us, it was very good uh, educational resource. You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Mark and Kim. You can find out more information about Mark at his website, franklinliquors.com, and more information about myself at vinitaswineworks.com. Interesting article that we read from daily750.com regarding alcohol with infusions of cannabis in it and the legal requirements around these brand new products. Yeah, Kim, we've talked a few times now about cannabis in the wine industry and in the liquor industry and general. And it's a trend. And that's why we talk about it. And when we saw this article, we kind of looked at each other because I don't understand it Mm -hmm. as far as the chemical part of cannabis. But I have customers who try to tell me about it. That's interesting. And um, (laughs) I think the main thing is just realize that this trend is so strong that just recently, two of the biggest wine corporations or liquor corporations have invested in the cannabis business. So that tells you everybody's looking at it. Mm-hmm. And this article I found was interesting because it was trying to explain to us the legal requirements around if you want to make a product that has both alcohol and some of these derivatives from marijuana. What what are the legal requirements? What are the labeling requirements? What can you do? What can you not do? And frankly, it was a little confusing. So it, it almost seems like there are some people that are getting away with using some of these ingredients, but then a lot of it has to do with what are you putting on your label and how much are you telling the consumer? I know we always like to talk about truth in advertising and transparency on labels. So this adds a whole nother element to that. And you're right, Kim, because it was hard to figure out if this is state, if this is federal. Uh, They mentioned the TTB, which monitors labeling of beverages. And they said way back in 2000, the TTB was actually aware that people were doing this. And they've really not come up with a set policy. What is legal and what is not legal. So I think people are kind of pushing the limits right now to to see. But as far as consuming, I've seen beer that says it has hemp based. Mm -hmm. 
So I assume the oils are restricted, but I'm really not excited about seeing it in wine. Yeah, I don't think I am either. But it's interesting that one of the things that was mentioned very succinctly in this was that there are differences to the different chemical components that are in hemp or that are in other, is it cannabinoids? I don't know, you sound like you know what you're talking about. I'm nervous now. (laughs) But some of these chemical compounds are uh, psychoactive, so do give you that high, give you that buzz. And then other ones are more being used by people for either pain control or purported medical issues. So sort of trying to figure out, okay, what substance from the plant is going into these beverages? How is it going to be regulated? How is it going to be labeled? And what is the purpose of it? Is there something in there that's supposed to give you a high? Or is it kind of like why someone would use medical marijuana in order for pain relief or for relieving symptoms of certain diseases? So an, an interesting I think interesting duality there. Yeah, they mentioned two main chemicals, CBD and THC, and the CBD has no effects. So I think you see in a lot of cosmetics and creams and lotions and stuff with with that compound. But the TTB said outright that no products can say that they're brewed with hemp. It didn't say anything about these other two chemicals or I don't even know if it's the same thing, to be honest with you. Yeah, it's that the CBD can come from the hemp, but the THC is more like what you would get if you were smoking marijuana. So it's it's trending I just can't see, I mean, if these big companies are worried enough to invest in some sort of industry related to it, they want to jump on the bandwagon fast. And I would say, Kim, probably another year or two, we're going to see something wine related to this because the beer industry is already onto it. Yeah, that seems to be where it's hitting right now is is brewers are using some of these uh, components in their, in their brews. And I think after reading this article, it sort of is jumping around in my brain that, all right, if the TTB is going to regulate this, then they need to make those rules a little bit more transparent so that everybody can play by the same set of rules. You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. If you'd like to get more information about Kim, please go to her website at vinitaswineworks.com. And if you'd like to get more information about myself, please go to franklinliquors.com. Next, we'd like to talk to you about an article that was in Wine Enthusiast magazine about rules for tasting room etiquette. And Kim, this can be tasting room or general wine tasting rules. Right. So some of these are specific to if you are going to a winery and you are tasting wine on location and others, you can put them into play whether you are doing that or whether you are attending a class or going to a tasting in a store or in some other location. So these these are pretty handy, helpful things for people to know. One of them that was mentioned you had brought up when you went on your winery tour in Finger Lakes, that the size should be known to the tasting room. You don't want to just show up with a huge group. Right. And this I had never given any consideration to before, but it does make sense because if you have a party of 12 people and they've only got one staffer or two staffers on hand to do to do pouring and talking and you're not the only group there, it can be very, very overwhelming for the staff. So if you are planning on going to a couple of wineries and doing some tastings and you do have a larger group, it is better to call ahead and make an appointment. And then they can tell you, yes, we can accommodate your larger group or maybe no, we can't. Maybe you need to make an appointment for a different time. 
time if that even is going to work. So yeah, so keep those things in mind, size of your group. We talked in the past about etiquette where there's pet etiquette, but in this article, they mentioned kid-friendly tastings, Mm -hmm. which I thought was a good thing to bring up. When we post events on Facebook, they actually do have a little button that says kid-friendly or not kid-friendly. Right. And I think for a lot of people, if they are going to do a winery tour, they're doing it as part of a vacation. So yeah, if you've got young children, of course, you've got them with you. But then when you are going to an environment that involves alcohol, sometimes that can get a little dicey. So again, like the size of your group, take into consideration if you have the kids with you, do you want to be doing a winery tasting? And and if you do, then again, just call ahead and check with the winery, ask them if it's okay. Chances are you are not the first parents to ask if it's okay to bring kids. And I've had this happen to me with some of my tastings where people are like, hey, you know, we want to come do your wine tasting, but we have three little kids. Is that okay? So it often does depend on the particular situation and the particular location. And for us being in the industry, we see things a little different than some people. Some people, it's a culture thing or they just don't want their kids exposed to it. So we understand that. Absolutely. And for some people, it's the opposite too. It's like, yeah, of course, this is part of our lifestyle. So we want our kids to see us consuming in a responsible manner. And hopefully they can learn a little bit about that from from us. So the kids won't be tasting any wine. But if you don't have a problem with them being exposed to that, that is certainly something that you can do as a parent. Also in this article, they, they mentioned a few things about tasting room etiquette or tasting etiquette where, and we talked about this in the past as well, Kim, is opinions. When you're doing a tasting or at a tasting and you taste something and you want to be careful how you express like I love that they put this in here. This this I think was 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 really smart and really key because you know there are some people who you're not going to like everything. And if you are at a winery that maybe is at an out of the way place where the style of wine that they make might be different than you're used to tasting, don't stick your tongue out. Don't be like blah. You know we see the we see people like this all the time where they're very opinionated and maybe the wine style isn't to their liking and they let you know. But just remember that there are people who this is their livelihood. They put a lot of blood, sweat and tears into making that wine. And I think that that has to be respected. Yeah, many times you don't know who's pouring that for you. So Mm -hmm. I mean, I personally had, I would say a bad experience where I was at a tasting, the gentleman pouring the wine was actually the winemaker. And he was asking me to taste the wine. I didn't I had no, I don't know, interest in it. But I didn't he was offering it to me and I refused it because I wanted to try something else. And then I found he was the wine maker. So to me, I actually probably insulted him by yeah. not trying something he wanted me to try, but I had no need for it in my store at the time. Right. So it, this was looking at the, the view of as the consumer saying something bad. But I've also seen in the past where the person pouring it has made comments they probably shouldn't have made. Like someone might say something they shouldn't, that they didn't like it. And in turn, instead of them taking it, they give back and say, well, it's not for you or it's mm, not for your mm-hmm. stuff. You know what I mean? It's rude that way. Yeah. So it can go both ways, but you just have to be careful. And, and I think keep uh, keep an open mind too. Like you probably haven't tasted everything that there is out there in the world. You may find a new favorite that you wouldn't necessarily even have tried. So that for me is one of the points of going to a tasting is trying new things. What do you have to lose? Not a whole lot. It's an ounce of wine in your glass. If you don't like it, you dump it out. But you know, just don't, don't be a jerk on either end of the spectrum. Don't be a jerk about it if you really hate something, but also don't feel like you're, don't be one of those people who are like, I know everything about wine and kind of be a jerk that way too. Yeah. <laughs> Cause we meet all kinds. 
And the last thing they talked about, and we stress this a lot anytime we do an event, Kim, is it is a tasting. It's not a drinking competition. Respect the alcohol. Don't be afraid to spit or not drink the whole glass. Mm -hmm. We always tell people when we do events, you know, you have this amount in front of you. If you don't usually drink that amount, there's spit buckets, spit cups. But oftentimes people don't like to do that. Right. And I think the whole spitting wine out thing, not only is it intimidating because when do you ever feel like you have to spit stuff out in front of a large group of people? You know, it seems so counterintuitive to nice manners. But in this situation, it is completely acceptable. There was a winery that we went to in the Finger Lakes that we must have tasted 15 to 20 wines from them. And you can't do that quantity of wine and remain sober if you are drinking everything that is in your glass, even if it's only a half an ounce or an ounce. That's the equivalent of like two full restaurant size glasses of wine. So be respectful of the alcohol, like you said. I also advise people to make sure that you eat through the day and stay hydrated. Hydration is very important. So bring bottles of water with you, drink water. Yeah, use those spit buckets and then make sure that you have a responsible sober driver with you as well. So I have to ask you, Kim, and I'd love you to share with our listeners, the first time you saw someone spit the wine, can you think back of what it was, how it was, and what you, like, did you always know you should spit it? Yeah, I did. Actually, I think in the first wine classes that we took, I I didn't spit any of, the, any of the wine out. And this was back when I was like 22, 23 years old. Those, we we drank the wines at our, yeah. at our class. We were also taking the tea home, which was helpful. But when I got my first wine job, and even before I started, and my boss, my future boss told me that drinking was not allowed, it was a fireable offense, and that everything that we tasted in the store would have to be spit out, I went home and I practiced spitting water into my houseplants. So that yeah. was how I taught myself how to spit out wine. So I practiced practiced before I started my first job so that when I got there and I was required to spit that I wouldn't be dribbling Cabernet all over myself. It's pretty similar with myself as well because it was a classroom setting and a lot of times and I was thinking when we do events Kim that's not one of the first things we say is a spit we say there's things there but they probably people don't understand how to do it unless you see someone do it and then you're wondering wow right so mine was also in a classroom and the instructor actually started tasting the wine walked within five feet of a trash barrel and just spit it out. Wow. Like a stream. Like she was very proud of how far she could spit her wine. And Maybe I we felt need to integrate that into our classes. Yeah. I teaching think, how to know, spit because we've never done that before. We, we do the tasting. We, we talk about the swirling, which we did in the past with Jim here on air, but we don't really show that spitting pot. Hmm, something more to think so, about. All right. Some new component. Some new component to our class. How to spit wine. You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Mark and Kim. You can find more information about myself at my website, vinitaswineworks.com. And you can find out more information about Mark and his business at franklinliquors.com. Great opinion article from the Chicago Tribune that we ran across that is a little uh, opposite of some of the other discussions that we've had about food and wine pairings. And this one was the premise that wine doesn't have to go with everything that are certain foods that not that they don't necessarily pair well with wine, but because of what they are, they don't really have to go with wine. So we're talking a lot along the lines of like fast food and junk food and 
foods in certain contexts. So I thought this was a nice different spin on pairing food and wine. Yeah, we always see daily articles about pairing oh, there's so much out there right? and there's food and wine. so much stuff that's like so out there like the whole like cookies and wine thing or yeah like what's your what's your favorite fast food hamburger and wine like those kind of things and sometimes it just gets to be too much it seems to be the trend in these pairings because in the past we would host events we just this is the classic food and wine pairing then we'd add something funny and now people seem to want the extreme you yeah. know we did the girl scout cookie we tried bagels and cookies and but to me i think kim i don't know you tell me your opinion but i think there's really kind of three types of pairings there's like the perfect pairing there's just pairings and then there's these experiments oh so you see so, this as experimental wine and food kind of things i think when they say it doesn't go with everything that's more experimental I, I, I kind of see this as a little bit of a thought exercise. Like, why are we seeing this need to believe that wine has to go with everything? We wouldn't drink a cup of coffee with everything. Maybe it's this idea that wine is so wonderful that it can make everything better. Sort of like bacon and chocolate and cheese and wine and these wonderful things that can all go together well or not. And it's like, okay, not everything has to have bacon in it. Not everything has to be having a perfect wine pairing with it. They brought up the, the idea of pancakes. And I know that I've seen posts on the internet from people saying the perfect pairing for a stack of pancakes and maple syrup. I'm like, no, I don't want it. Unless it's a mimosa, I don't want to drink wine with my pancakes. Like seriously. Yeah, they did say wine does not go with everything. And in the past, we've always talked about things that are hard to pair with wine. But you're right, Kim, you can come up with something to pair with pancakes, but I want milk or coffee with my pancakes. Mm -hmm. And I think they said that in this article too. There's many times there's foods you're eating that you just don't really want want, but you're open to the idea. I would go with an oaky Chardonnay with a nice pancake, you know, <laughs> at brunch. I love it. You know, but not for not for breakfast. Not for breakfast. I think a lot of it is context too. And and I think that was the main point of this. It's like figure out wh what you're eating, where you're eating it, and does wine fit into that overall experience and and then that takes us down the rabbit hole of well why can't wine work at say a baseball game when you're eating a hot dog or with your chili fries when you're watching a football game and it's like okay well why not what if you love wine and that is your beverage of choice why not try to integrate it into everything and maybe for you that does work for you but then for other people it's like well no i prefer to have a beer in this context or i just want a glass of water or something like that. So it, it, it's an interesting thing to think about, I think. Yeah, I think it's funny how in everyday life this came up. Just recently, I was at a football game and a couple in front of me were having hot dogs. The gentleman had a beer and the woman had a wine. And hmm. I'm thinking, wow, to be at a game and reach out for wine with your hot dog, that's impressive, right? So that's a pairing that's kind of extreme, but at the game. It's certainly different, but, but still you do see wine for sale at Fenway Park and at Gillette Stadium. So it's not like it's completely unheard of. Those beverages are there and available for people. But yeah, I, I, I don't think it's necessarily the mainstream. The other thing I got out of this too, Kim, is this article was in the Chicago Tribune. If this article was in Wine Enthusiast magazine, it probably wouldn't go this direction, don't you think? Because the, the Tribune is not a wine industry related no. publication. So they're not really pushing wine. If it was a publication or blogger that was into wine, they probably wouldn't say that. 
but I I can respect that because I like to hear different perspectives. So hearing the perspective of a non-wine drinker, kind of having a reaction to all of these other things that we've been seeing about wine going with everything. I I like to hear that that other side of the story because not everybody is a wine drinker. So maybe this person who who wrote this opinion piece is getting frustrated by the fact that there's all this stuff out there saying that wine will go with everything. So that for me to hear a different perspective from a non-wine person is also valuable. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Mm. I, I think the the wine publications though are getting very extreme and very detailed now will they they would say pairing with fast food and now they're getting more detailed with pairing with mcdonald's french fries but i don't know how helpful that is to regular wine drinkers you know how i mean when you have more detail they have to keep keep going the next level yeah they have to like keep upping it was hamburgers now okay we got to go we got to add in a chain then we got to add in the menu of the chain so it just keeps going on and on When, when is it going to end so i can see like you said where this author might have said, you know, this is getting too crazy now because of all this they're yeah. seeing out there. And I kind of agree with that. Like, I feel like maybe this is just too much. But that also could be my perspective of like, I feel like there are things that are not wine appropriate, a lot of desserts and things like that. So it depends on your perspective. Thank you for listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We've been your hosts, Mark Lenzi and Kim Simone. To find out more information about our show and our podcasts, visit us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine, and we will talk to you again next week. Cheers. Bye.